0: More than a third of black workers report being unfairly treated in the workplace due to their race and ethnicity. According to a survey released by the Society for Human Resource Management in May of 2021, the number rises to 42% over the last five years, for black workers. The Cost of Racial Injustice report found the number of Asian workers who experienced a discrimination at work stood at 26% over the same five year time span, while Latinos and Hispanics reported discrimination at a 21% clip, while white workers experienced the same at a rate of 12 percent. One man who's been on a mission to change the way we view racism in the workplace is Jared Carroll. For more than 10 years, he's fundamentally changed the viewpoints of senior leaders, executives, media, and government officials, along with the nonprofit sector, and organizational teams through leadership, coaching, speaking, and more. By facilitating reflective and actionable conversations about racism. He's literally helped thousands of people and dozens of organizations become more inclusive, self-aware, and anti-racist while also becoming more empathetic. Carol Jordan this week to have a conversation about racism, how to curve it in the workplace, his book on the topic, and so much more. I'm Kevin McShann. Let's have this conversation. moment to welcome you to the program and I'm super excited to talk to you about uh, the amount of racism in the world today, buddy. Good to see you this morning and thank you so very much for being here.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you. Glad to have this conversation.
0: As am I. And Darren, tell me, I know that you've been on a mission for the last 10 years to really help organizations and government officials and those in nonprofits to really changed their perspective about racism. So I'm wondering if you can tell me all about it, going into the work that you do.
1: Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's been about 10 years. I was a teacher for 12 years, so I left in 2011, so about 11 years. Really been focusing on how do I, as a white man, uh, with a lot of privilege, a lot of access, a lot of influence, uh, opportunity, how do I use that that power and that privilege to influence others who are in uh, well, really anyone, but especially people who are in positions of power and positions of decision making, who are you know really making whether they're in corporations or policy or politics, making decisions that are adversely affecting uh, so many people, not just black folks, but all kinds of uh, you know folk, folks of color. But uh, my father was a gay man, so I'm really um, Uh, invested and committed to equity and equality for the LGBT community, and really helping through dialogue, through conversation, through storytelling, through relationships, through listening, um, helping folks, you know, evolve their consciousness, uh, accelerate their fluency around these issues that are affecting, you know, affecting all of us, really, but especially folks who are on the downside of power.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you sparked my interest to ask you a follow-up question since you shared about your father. You know, we just had in the stage the overturning of Roe v. Wade and, and that could uh, affect other rights to privacy laws as well. So are you worried about things like marriage equality and other rights for, uh, to private privacy and equity uh, for groups around America with this decision?
1: Uh, Great question, Kevin. You know, I, I am actually, and I think people should be, you know, the logic, well, I mean, I think you know this uh, as a black man, um, you know, anytime there's progress, whether it's racial progress, you know, sexual orientation, anytime there's kind of, you know, uh, progress for any group of people or any, any kind of, uh, with any kind of dimension of diversity, there's always, always, Always uh, backlash. There's always some sort of response, some sort of reaction, some sort of uh, you know backlash against that progress. And so I think what we're seeing now, right, is you know Roe v. Wade was '73. Um, I was born in '73, so it, you know it's like right, around, it kind of it's my lifetime basically, right? Uh, and we think, hey, all right, that's great, that's progress. Well, we know it's taken 49 years, but there's been it's not like it's it's just this year that people are upset about it that people want to change it. So finally, it's change. And I think the same type of logic around um, not seeing it as an equity issue, not seeing it as a as an equality issue, but seeing it people in power, whether they're white, whether they're straight, whether they're men, or all are all, you know, all of the above, see it as as they are now being oppressed, being marginalized, being, uh, you know, challenged. And, and I, th- I think, you know, many of us who, who understand that that's not true, um, that doesn't matter because if people think that, that's what they're going to push forward with. And so if you have people in power, whether they're in media or politics or government, right, they're going to push that narrative and in, there are enough people uh, in the United States and, and around the world who, who share that belief, who share that belief in that narrative, who um, are going to work very hard, are going to continue to work very hard to, to reverse some of the freedoms, some of the uh, opportunities, some of the equality and equity that we have fought so hard for. And, you know, you brought up marriage equality. I've also heard people talking about reversing the, uh, the right for interracial marriage. Right, things that we have just think like, yeah, it's about time we've gotten these, and now it's like, oh wait, those could be under threat? So I think the the message is to be staying vigilant, to not accept any anything, uh, that it's just going to be, you know, not take anything for granted because there are people who, who actively and aggressively want things uh, reversed.
0: Yeah, and, and let's talk now about the book and the podcast that you've created is sort of address this issue. I know it's called uh, uh, Confronting Racism, uh, an invitation to act or reflect and act. So I'm wondering if you can tell me about
1: it. Yeah, so thank you for bringing that in. Yeah, it's uh, called A White Guy Confronting Racism. So I am that that white guy confronting racism. And, um, you know, we'll talk about the title first and then the the subtitle, because they're both very important. So I wanted something that was very... um, you know, very clear and very unapologetic about who I am, right, as a white person, because I don't have to, you know, this is the thing with white people, and and when I work with white people in, in, you know, a variety of contexts around, like, we don't have to do this because racism benefits us, right? It serves us to be quiet, to go along with the status quo, to not buck the system, right? And so I'm saying, hey, but actually, when when we really think about it, it doesn't serve us. It it impacts us all. It infects us all. the the mental bandwidth, the things we have to we have to think about, um, impact us. Not in the same way as as black folks and other people of color, but it does impact us. So I'm saying, you know, in the book, hey, let's really think about who we are. And, and the the audience is mostly white folks. Although it's it's you know anyone can read it. It's applicable to anyone, and and um, and can be can be understood and, and used by anyone. But it's really, hey, white folks, who are we and who do we want to be? Who do you want to be? Do you want to be that guy, that guy who doesn't care, who doesn't know, who isn't curious, who's clueless, et cetera? Or do you want to be a guy or a or person yeah. right, who, who cares about humanity, who understands uh, that these issues of racism, whether they're personal, individual, or especially systemic and institutional, they affect us all. They affect us all. They affect you in your day-to-day work, your relationships, your are navigating the world. And so, it's really a call. It's a it's part manifesto, uh, part uh, confessional. I tell a lot of stories about my evolution of consciousness, and part um, call to action. And that's where the invitation to reflect and act is, and and it's very intentional. Both reflection and action, because I think sometimes we jump straight to the action, like, tell me what to do. All right, I'm going to go do this thing, or these three things, or I'm going to go to that march, or go to that, you know, meeting or whatever, which is great. Action is is awesome and it's necessary, but without the ongoing reflection and really thinking about who we are and how we're showing up in, in our various contexts, sometimes the action can be limited, can be performative, um, and can be... Uh, can cannot have the scale and the impact that we really want it to have. So that's why I emphasize the reflection, to really ongoingly be thinking about how this is all manifesting.
0: Yeah, and I think if you're thankful for your act, you can be more effective when you act, right? If you re- re- reflect first, right? That, that's the entire point.
1: Exactly. And, and I don't see it necessarily. I mean, you said reflect first. Yes, reflect first, then act. But it's, it's more of like a, an interweaving of reflection and action. So, right. So, you know, th- something comes up. Let's just take, uh, you know, like this whole idea of like critical race theory that's, you know, being being uh, talked about. In, in conservative circles, right? Like, okay, so an action might be like, well, that's messed up and I'm gonna go to, you know, this institution or this thing, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drive, you know, for change. And you, and you make some policy change or you make some, you know, uh, institutional change, great. But as we talked about a little bit ago, like that's, that's not the end of it. Sometimes I think people think, you know, the, the, you know, you do an action, you've changed something, you can kind of just wipe your hands. And you're like, all right, I act, we're done, next. And we know it doesn't work that way. These, these issues, these perspectives, they're cyclical. They're, the, they're, they're contested ongoingly. So we have to continually be reflecting about like, what do we need to, now I've acted in this you know, context, what do I need to continually be reflecting on so that I can continually act in impactful and effective ways? So I think that's, that's the message that I'm trying to get across to folks.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and to that point, you know, Jared, I don't have to tell you that the American society is becoming increasingly more partisan. You know, I'm always uh, one for building bridges of acceptance and inclusion, so from your perspective, tell me how do you think we, we can create sort of more bridges of understanding and bridge that partisan divide?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a great question, Kevin. If I had the answer, like, you know, we, we would be Nobel Peace uh, Prize winners. <laughs> but I think, you know, and this is going to sound cliche and I'll unpack a little bit, but we really have to listen to each other. For I'd say for, I've been doing this work for 22 years, you know, in some capacity. And I'd say for about, gosh, probably 12, 13 years, I was what I would call a, a social justice warrior. I was hard-hitting, I was aggressive, I was, um, I was acerbic, right? And I was really just trying to get my point across and I, you know, to anyone who would listen and I wasn't really interested in the conversation. I was like, you, you're wrong, you don't get it, you don't understand why your action or your inaction is blah, blah, blah. And I was just, I was dogmatic, I was preachy, I was, I was self-righteous and I found that I wasn't really making the impact that I, that I wanted to. Right, I might have looked good, and people might have given me applause or patted me on the shoulder and said, "Hey, you know, thanks so much for your, for your work." But in the end, was I really actually making change? Maybe some. So what I've found the last 10 years or so, really, and especially the last several years, um, as I really deepen my, uh, kind of my understanding of how I need to be doing this work, is a couple things that are important. One is EQ, emotional intelligence. So that involves, you know curiosity, it involves empathy, it involves compassion, it involves listening, humility, self-awareness, vulnerability, right? Being uh, willing to stay in conversations when they're uncomfortable, when people disagree with you, when people are being uh, rude or aggressive, right? So there's that EQ side of things. There's also the mindfulness side of things, right? How do we sit with uncertainty? If I come up and I say, hey, blah, 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 and someone says, I don't believe that, I don't believe, uh, you know, black people should have equal rights. I don't believe in gay marriage, right? If I'm going to go, well, you're wrong, it's never going to go anywhere. It's just going to fuel that divide that you were talking about a few minutes ago, Kevin. So how do we sit with that uncertainty, and how do we say, hey, tell me more about your perspective, right? Which sounds counterintuitive, like you're going to, you're going to ask a racist or a homophobe or a right-wing, blah, 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 like to tell you, yeah, yeah, I am. Because if we can disarm and, and decharge a little bit we could actually have conversation and that's where the the understanding of perspectives can change and then the third part the third emphasis that I that I uh, kind of put a lot of weight on is is storytelling how do we individually and collectively people who care about equity about justice about uh, you know change how do we craft narratives that are inclusive that are compelling that are personal that are um, that are vulnerable, right? And how do we shape those narratives um, that get out into the world and start to um, be the dominant narratives as opposed to the current dominant narratives, which of course are going to uphold the privileged majority. So that's kind of an overview of, of my approach, right? EQ, uh, mindfulness and, and storytelling and, and narrative is really our, our key factors and components to, to my work. And, and I, I would say our work.
0: Yeah, it's a collective effort for sure, and you know, Jared, I'm also wondering your perspective on the black experience in America as a contingent male and how it's really evolved. Obviously, uh, the most uh, one of the most uh, prevalent headlines was the murder of George Floyd and the continual uh, mass shootings in America. So when we look at the black black experience uh from your perspective what do you think
1: of yeah great question um and thank you for for you know trusting me by by asking that and and wanting to hear my answer one thing i'm i'm very clear about in the book and when i talk you know is that as a white person i'm very mindful and and intentional about not speaking on behalf well on behalf of anyone really but especially on behalf of uh, black folks or any black, any individual black folk person or, or, or as a collective. So with that said, though, one thing that I have found to be successful for myself and very important and that I try and help others is I believe black people. I believe individual stories. I believe the collective experience. Who am I as a white person to doubt or challenge or uh, disbelieve or dismiss uh, when when a black person says this happened to me, this is how I feel. So I think that's that might seem like a, a no brainer, but sadly, when we think about you know the divisiveness that you talked about you know, earlier, the political divide, the the challenging, it really comes down to white people not believing what black people are saying. So, oh, I I don't feel you know if I'm a black person I don't feel safe around the police. Well, I do. How come you don't, right? Or I don't think you know I think there's uh, I have I, I think there's inequality in my in my uh, in my job. I don't see any black people you know uh, in in the upper leadership. Well, that's just because they're not you know qualified, right? So there are all these these excuses, these responses that white people and other folks have that perpetuate the narrative that black people aren't uh, good enough, aren't, aren't strong enough, aren't smart enough, all these things. And if we really or when we really as white folks, you know, think about our responses, I bet that most of us don't really believe most of the things that we're saying. So I've kind of taken this default position is if you say something is true, I believe you, it's true. And so with that perspective, when we get into these conversations about whatever it's police brutality or inequality or, you know, whatever the issues are, I'm in a better position to be part of that conversation, because I'm already I already default, believe you. And I think that's something that white folks can and should really uh, work on to to have better, more productive uh, conversations that lead to more equity and inequality.
0: Yeah, and a big part of the core of your work has to do with eradicating uh, racism in the workplace. So talk to me about uh, eradicating attitudinal barriers from leadership positions, or how we sort of move that needle of progress forward.
1: Yeah, no, great, and it, and this is the challenge because here's, for every every senior white leader and they're mostly men so let's just say every for every senior you know white man who's like uh, i don't believe that and they're, they're they're actively you know oppositional and confrontational right those i mean yes you do have those guys and you, they need to be talked to but those those are hard nuts to crack but what i'm really interested in are the are the white folks who are in senior positions who aren't oppositional they're not necessarily confrontational but they're not actually actively doing anything right? So they're not like, no, I don't believe this. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, great. Yep. 100% agree, Jared. Yep. Yeah, we need to do more, right? So they're, they're in agreement. They're, they're, you know, saying saying the right things, but are they actually taking action? So my approach is to be, you know, people are probably familiar with like the yin yang kind of concept, right? Like this idea of, of, uh, of uh, complementary forces. So you have like, you know, for when there's night, there needs to be day when there's, You know when there's light there's darkness right and so the same idea i take with this idea of like i'm going to challenge you i'm going to challenge you to think differently to take action to uh, go outside of your comfort zone to use your power and privilege to to make change and and this is the key part which i think a lot of coaches and consultants don't focus i'm also going to support you in doing that work because if you think about it if i've never thought about really in any real sense about racism, about inequality, about injustice, right? And I'm the leader of this, you know, big company. And I, and then, you know, someone like me comes in and says, hey, I'm going to help you. And I just say, hey, here's equity, here's such justice, here's what you got to do. Now go do it. They're not going to be able to do that. They're not. They're just not. They don't have the fluency. They don't have the motivation. They don't have the background. They don't have the time. So with, when we challenge people, we have to, uh, to kind of have that support. And, you know, and support doesn't mean handholding. It doesn't mean coddling. It means, all right, we've talked about what needs to be um, needs to be done. I'm going to be here with you to support you in doing that. I'm going to keep reminding you. I'm going to give you resources. I'm going to give you support. I'm going to be a thought partner for you. So all these things are part of it. Now, as a white person, right, I feel comfortable um, being in that role with other white folks because they can come to me and, you know, I'm still I'm white like them, but I've also done enough work, enough uh, learning and growing to to have a different perspective that can support them in their growth and journey where they actually start to make change and make better decisions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, Jared, I'll share just a bit about about myself. You know, I was born with cerebral palsy, bunny and Outside of hosting this podcast, I work with organizations to sort of level the playing field for folks mm-hmm. with, with disabilities when it comes to employment. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on the, the notion of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workforce for folks with disabilities as well.
1: Yeah, so that's not that hasn't been my focus in my work. But... The way I look at it is, you know, there are there there's what we have is, you know, what we call in, in the in the field kind of like a dominant narrative. So the dominant narrative is whether it's it's you know it's white supremacy, it's male, it's patriarchy, it's hetero, heteronormativity, and then it's it's able-bodied, right? It's it's people who um, are able-bodied who are don't have a disability, don't identify with having disability. And what happens is whatever that dimension of diversity, right? All those, these different dimensions of diversity, folks who are part of the dominant narrative think that their norm is the norm. And so I'm sure you've experienced this in your career, you know, Kevin, and just in your life, right? Like, how do we transform from, oh, we have to tolerate this, or we have to like, you know, Uh, you know, do something different to like, you know, accommodate, how do we work in all people's abilities into the dominant narrative into the norm, where it's not like an other thing. It's not an extra thing. It's not, you know, this, this tedious thing. It's like, this is what we do. And so, again, that's not my kind of specialty in my area of expertise, but it's the same philosophy, right? How do we normalize everyone's experience so that people aren't feeling outed and shamed and otherized for who they are um and so that's uh you know obviously that's 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 super high level kind of perspective but that's the philosophy or the ethos that i think more of us need to to be taking when we're creating policies when we're uh you know regulations laws etc
0: yeah absolutely you know uh jared i also wanted to ask you about Political inaction in, in uh, Congress when it comes to you know guns. You know I live here in uh, Canada. I live in Ontario, where well, once the shooting in the states happened, our prime minister over here outlawed uh, AR-15s for uh, recreational use. But in America, uh, they're uh, somewhat beholden to the NRA and, you know, they don't want uh, the business model of the, that to be disrupted. But my counterpoint my kind of to of that would be how many people have to die before they actually uh, do something about gun violence. I know uh, that they recently uh, passed that bipartisan gun bill, but I'm curious, is the white uh, male kind of view the continued Mass shootings in America and how we curb the
1: bloodshed. Yeah, great, great perspective. I love how you frame that, Kevin. Oh man, it's it's something that I I worry about. You know, I have thirteen year old twins. Um, I live in you know in Oakland, which you know is a big city in the Bay Area. There's a lot of gun violence in my hometown, Um, you know, I think people are so, uh, I don't know if it's addicted or just strongly attached or what it is to the idea that guns are necessary, Um, you know, from, from, you know, the Second Amendment in, in America's Constitution, you know, you have the right to bear arms, and the context in which that amendment was was passed or was you know 200 and plus you know 250 years ago is is different now it's just different and so you, you mentioned the nra conservatives gun owners right they're so um they're, they're prioritizing that right to own uh, uh you know to have a gun over the reality of what's happening and what's been happening for years, decades. And it's tough, Kevin, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Um, I don't, if I'm just being candid, I don't see uh, a breakthrough anytime soon. I don't know this, sp- I haven't read the specifics of the new, you know, of the new bipartisan uh, law that you that you mentioned, but um, you know, I think it's going to be tough, because if I'm if I'm prioritizing gun rights over mass shootings, you know what else is going to convince me to to change to change the laws to change the ability for people to get guns? I don't know, um, and I and I wish I had a, a a stronger, more clear answer, but I but I don't.
0: Yeah, you know, the, there's also a correlation between racism and voting rights, and as you know, Darren, there's a Big midterm election coming up in November, and there are certain states around the country that are, that are actively trying to restrict access to the voter box. So, how concerned are you from the lens of racism about the restricted or proposed of restricted access to the a ballot box?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm very concerned, Kevin, um, and here's the whole thing, whether it's po- politicians or government officials or, you know, key media personalities, someone like a Tucker Carlson, right, um, there's this, this idea of, you know, replacement theory, and there are all kinds of versions of it and, and extre- extremes of it, but the basic idea is that, oh, no, white people and in this is yeah, just keep it to race in this case, you know, right people white people who have been we've been the dominant group for, you know, since the founding of this country of, of America and, and before now we are under attack, we are the victims we if we don't stand up for for us and, and, you know, all these uh, beliefs and these traditions and these values, then then we're going to be replaced, we're going to go away. And so That that theory, whether it's extreme uh, overt racism or more kind of, you know, more kind of covert um, kind of dog whistle stuff, that's what's driving these policies, these voting regulation changes, these the rhetoric is they and they meaning black folks, meaning immigrants, meaning, you know, whoever, right? They are coming to replace us. And if we don't do something about it, we're screwed. And i think that message and it's hard to know like do people really believe that or are they just pushing that to you know for political gains i think it's both i think it's a, i think there's a spectrum there's a continuum of of folks and so that's what we're dealing with right this inability for white folks who have been in power and still are by the way in power um this this concern that they will not be in power uh, soon, and so these these political and rhetorical um, moves over the you know the last well really several decades to well we need to make sure you know the, you know like we all know that the the 2020 you know voting uh, thing was a, was a scam right there was no illegal vote there's no illegal ballots right. But pushing that agenda supports this whole idea of like, you know, we need to stand up for our democracy. And it's like, that's what we're dealing with. So people who are on the, you know, on the left, unfortunately, have to have to counter that, have to come up with strategies around how do we fight this? How do we how do we disabuse people who are inclined to follow that rhetoric when it's illogical and uh, and not true?
0: And yeah, when we talk about uh, the political consequences of all of this, we're seeing it in the Supreme Court, you know. One of the is of former President Trump would be stacking the court with three um, Supreme Court justices that were determined to be more conservative and sort of walk back the progress that has been made. So when we look at politically and the supreme court and racism how do you think those things are interconnected
1: oh i mean it, it i would say trump and and these three justices and you know and just other policies and rhetoric and kind of dominant political discourse has has reinforced the racism that has been you know has been here for for forever, so it's not like it's oh you know we were fine with Obama and now Trump's brought it back like, he's he's brought it back but but I, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. He hasn't brought it back. He's just re uh, kind of highlighted what's been going on for for centuries, and with more um, with more vigor, with more uh, specificity, with more callousness, with more candor right and so when you have someone like him and people who support him and then have the power to appoint you know through part luck of the draw but to appoint three conservative justices i mean that's going to have implications for us for decades right and it's it's frightening um and you know i i think of and this is going to sound, you know, maybe cliche, but I just think of my kids. You know, they're 13, and what's what's you know what's their life going to be like in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? Is it are they going are we going to live in this racist dystopia, or will the will the seeds of change and de- shifting demographics will they will they shift? You know, what the world's like. I, you know, I don't know, um, and that's why we continue to do the work. Because we have to, each one of us has to be influential in shaping the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the final question I have for you on racism before I ask you about your interest in hobbies is the role the media plays. You know, Jared, I originally went to school to become a journalist. And I have to tell you, I'm somewhat uh, disappointed in, in the role the media has uh played and sort of shaping the narrative so tell me how do you view the role of the media in this whole discussion
1: well yeah i mean that's a big that's a big topic kevin but i think generally like most media is sensationalized right it's to it's to get you know it's to get readers or viewers or whatever the medium is and i think you know there are there are there are outlets out there who do go deeper and who do kind of really have the the conversations and and that's important and um, but they're also and this is both on the left and the right and everywhere in between right that that just looking to sensationalize and and do sound bites and that's nothing new right that's just that's how media works and so my uh, my suggestion and my invitation and my challenge to people is you know find media outlets that aren't just parroting, you know, the, the same things that others are, are, are saying, right, find, be willing, be curious, be interested in more nuanced perspectives, be uh, willing to read maybe a longer article or watch a, you know, a different uh, video from a from a source, maybe that isn't as mainstream. So it's really around how does each of us uh, kind of curate, if you will, our um, our media consumption. Because, you know, unless we're going to just avoid it altogether, which, you know, some would argue is, is a good choice, right? Unless we're going to do that, like, we're going to be bombarded by it. So how do we uh, ensure as best we can that what we are consuming gives us the most thorough analysis and, and perspectives on the issues that we can make the most informed decisions?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, Jared, doing my resource, research out of your buddy. I know that you're an avid reader and musician, so tell me, when you're not doing this important work, how do you sort of find your inner center and reconnect with what r- really makes you passionate outside of work?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely avid reader. Um, I just started my 60th book of the year, so I'm, I'm on track to read more than 100 books this year. I read all kinds of stuff, uh, fiction. I read a lot of music biographies, a lot of stuff uh, on history. So yeah, reading. Um, a lot of people see reading as like a task. I see it as a, a way to just relax and and enter into other worlds. I'm also a big meditator, so I'll meditate at least ten minutes a day, usually usually more, just to kind of calm myself, center myself, um, be ready for the you know for the world. Um, I'm also, as you said, a musician. I play in a reggae band. Um, so I'm a guitarist and a little bit of harmonica. I used to play some bass in a reggae band. Um, and then my son and I, we've been really kind of getting into record collecting the last like six six months or so. Um, listen to some jazz, he's a, he's a piano player. So listen to a lot of jazz and um, kind of African stuff, you know, world music. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of good record stores around, you know, in Oakland and San Francisco that, that we frequent. So yeah, um, I've, I definitely, uh, prioritize self-care and and a break from from my work and from you know from the nine to five because if not it'll just it'll just eat you up so yeah it's,
0: it's important this is it
1: it so is Kevin it so is yes for sure
0: yeah Jared when you look at your overall life well, both personally and professionally but I'm wondering uh, how how do you want that to be defined.
1: I want people to see me as someone who cared about humanity, who was willing to listen to people who was curious, who had something to say, who contributed to the conversation, the important conversations around justice, around equity, who, um, who, who was always willing and able to show up and advocate for, um, for people who, uh, who maybe didn't have as strong a voice or whose voices were uh, seen as less than or diminished. And so part of that also, and this is where the mindfulness comes in, Kevin, is, is you know, not I'm not attached to, I'm invested in, but I'm not attached to outcomes. And I think that equanimity is really important to me, both now and as a legacy, to say, all right, he was able to do this work for you know, who knows what it will have been, you know, 40, 50 years, um, but he never burned out. He never, uh, he was just, he was just consistent. And I think that equanimity um, is a big part of that legacy to, to be able to do this work for the long haul.
0: Consistency of performance is important, isn't it?
1: That's so right, Kevin, yes.
0: Absolutely. So Jared, tell me if people want well, to get connected with you personally, or they want them to be part of, What's the best way they can do that?
1: Yeah, so I'd say three main ways. Um, one is LinkedIn, so I'm pretty uh, pretty active, although not as much as I was the last couple of years, but on LinkedIn, so just search for me, Jared Carroll, J-A-R-E-D-K-A-R-O-L. On LinkedIn, you can connect with me or send me a message. Um, also my website, jaredcarroll.com, is where you can find out about um, my services, uh, coaching and speaking and facilitating dis- uh, conversations. And then the book, uh, you can also find there uh, at jaredcaroll.com, but also a white guy confronting racism.com/ book. And that's where you can learn more about the book and f- uh, find all kinds of different places to buy it, including uh, several black-owned uh, bookstores, which I'm trying to do my best to support. So those are the three main areas. I'm not on a lot of other social media that actively, so um, those are your best bets.
0: Well, sometimes, you know, uh... Being a detached from social media isn't a bad thing, right?
1: <laughs> I, I wholeheartedly agree.
0: Absolutely. Well, Jared, I want to thank you for engaging in conversation with me this morning and providing your perspective on a very important topic of confronting a of and body, your interesting perspective. And Tom, on my behalf, is most appreciated. And I want to thank you for being here this morning.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much, Kevin. You're, you're very welcome. I'm glad to be here with you and, and have had this conversation.